Dr. Mark Duggan is a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, focusing much of his research on the healthcare sector. And Dr. Andrew Johnston is an assistant professor of economics at University of California, Merced. Today, they will discuss the op-ed they recently co-authored in the Wall Street Journal on a big and hidden tax bill that could be coming for businesses at the worst possible time. Let's listen in. Really delighted we've got such a large and broad great group assembled this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Mark Duggan, who is uh, uh, research, uh, head of research at Economic Policy at Stanford Institute. He is a, really has focused a lot of his studies on the healthcare sector. Uh, he and Dr. Andrew Johnston, who will be joining him, who's an assistant professor for economics at the University of California, Merced, recently wrote a serious and timely and depthful op-ed in the Wall Street Journal concerning the pandemic and how we need to respond there or frankly have some pretty severe economic consequences. So, gentlemen, we're looking forward to hearing your best thoughts in that regard. I think we are fortunate, Nancy, in the series that you and Liz Morris have put together over a good number of months now to have such a uh, contemporary, knowledgeable group of speakers and certainly uh, Mark and Andrew qualified for that. So let me just quickly get into the discussion uh, there. Mark and Andrew, we'll turn the program over to you for your opening remarks, and then we'll open up for questions. So, Andrew, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? Sure. <laughs> go, go ahead. Age before beauty, so to speak. <laughs> well, I, think, I, think both of you, I think both of you are pretty contemporary, but Mark, you go ahead and go first. We, we'll, the floor is yours. Uh, so great. Yeah. Thank you all so much uh, for uh, being here today. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you several years ago. I don't know if you remember back when I was in my Wharton days. I do. At the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, but it's great to reconnect. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of what you're up to at No Labels. Uh, so just to tell you a little bit about, like, <clears throat> um, I can zoom in on anything, but the, um, Basically, I've been over the years for more than 20 years since uh, wrapping up grad school in 99. I've been you know, sort of looking at U.S. economic policy, uh, mainly on the spending side at the federal level and trying to think through the economic effects of various federal policies. And so a lot of that has been in the healthcare sector, looking at programs like Medicare and Medicaid or in on the you know, program, the sort of transfer program side, things like social security, uh, veterans disability, and now unemployment insurance. Um, so you know, basically if the government spends a lot of money on something, it, I'm generally very interested in it. I've done some stuff recently on defense contracting, which is a, another whole area, a whole different set of issues. Um, and you know, partly I'm drawn to this because uh, I, you know, I think the, um, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm energized by the potential for economic policy to do a lot of good. And I think economic policy in the U.S. does do a lot of good, but I, I think in a lot of ways it doesn't quite realize its potential. It could be made better in many, many ways. Um, so that kind of motivates the research that I do, and I think that's a motivator for Andrew, too, trying to help make economic policy somewhat better than it would be uh, in the absence of our research. And that's sometimes hard, and, and that's why I so appreciate and I'm honored by the invitation to present to all of you today because you're more connected to the front lines than I am uh, sitting in. I mean, I, I, we're not really in the ivory tower. Everybody's at home now. So <laughs> not actually in the office at Stanford, but, um, but it's, it is, uh, you know, it's really an honor and a pleasure uh, to be here. 
I think the, um, and I'll just um, talk a little bit and then Andrew can, um, can follow up. I mean, obviously we've been uh, hit by sort of unprecedented economic shock here in the US. Uh, in February, uh, I was teaching Econ 1 to Stanford undergrads um, and was talking about how the unemployment rate at that time was at a 60 year low of three and a half percent. Um, and had actually guest speakers coming in who were doing projections of unemployment in the, over the next 10 years. And it was basically just flat at three and a half or four percent projecting that for the next decade. And obviously things quite quickly uh, soon after that. So we went from a 60 year low in February of this year to an 80 year high in April of this year at 14.7 percent. You have to go back to the Great Depression since we've hit an unemployment rate that Hi, and that was, you know, all of you on the call know as well as I do that that was, you know, driven by this uh, just completely unexpected COVID shock that hit the U.S. economy and really shut down huge parts of our economy, many of which are still uh, shut down now. And so I think one of the things, so and and what this, so uh, what this caused, this big increase in unemployment was a gigantic increase in the number of people turning to this program called unemployment insurance, which is administered by state uh, governments. And it is, um, it's basically the structure is pretty much the same across all states in the US. Um, you receive 50% of your past earnings up to a, a weekly maximum. And, the, and the, in some states it's a little more than 50%, but it's basically 50% up to a weekly maximum. Um, and so, and the weekly maximum varies across states. So it's higher in some states than in others. But you know, think of that if someone was, let's say, earning eight hundred dollars a week and they got laid off from their job. In the typical state, they're going to get an unemployment insurance benefit of four hundred dollars a week. Now, the federal government, um, and so that was kind of set to go. That was going to happen regardless of any action by the federal government. But partly because of the magnitude of the shock and because policymakers were terrified about the psychological impacts of this on people's uh, behavior, uh, there were a number of uh, federal interventions that sort of culminated in this CARES Act that led to a big supplement in un people's unemployment insurance benefits. Now, um, you know, as a, and, and so the, the goal to some extent with this support and unemployment insurance, enhanced unemployment insurance benefits was just one component of it, but was to sort of counteract the adverse economic effects of the economic shutdown. And so, uh, and. So one thing that economists have thought a lot about in, in trying to think about how best to design unemployment insurance, is you wanna think carefully about the trade-off between uh, helping people when they've lost their job versus giving too much support so they're not hungry to get back into the game to get back to work. And, so people, and that's where this 50%, people sometimes think of that as the just right Goldilocks level People are going to get some help, but only for they're going to be hungry to get back to work. Now, what the federal government did was said, we want to make people basically whole. Uh, and, you know, what they would have liked to do, I think most policymakers would have liked to do is basically just say to states, you know what, instead of doing this 50 percent of people's prior earnings, why don't you just do 100 percent of their prior earnings? Um, remarkably, uh, it was impossible for most states in the US, given their information systems for their unemployment insurance programs, it was impossible for them to do that. Like they couldn't just change a number from 50% to 100%. Um, and so uh, instead, what they ended up doing was getting a $600 a week uh, enhanced benefit that, and you, you've heard a lot about, and I may be going on too long and Mac, you should feel free to interrupt me if, I'm, if this is not, like if I'm doing too much. 
No, I think you're doing doing fine. I think what we normally do is, you know, the first 20, 30 minutes is commentary with, with you and Andrew, and then we'd like to open up for questions. So okay, kind of, great. Kind of keep, keep that in mind. We, we won't have any red buttons here on the debate. Go ahead. Okay, but feel free to mute me or whatever is necessary. I get to talk about this, and I get so excited because I'm so interested and energized about it. But, um, but if I'm, like, painfully boring, then please don't – or just going over my time, please don't hesitate to interrupt me. So in any case, that's what I think that's what people would have liked to have done. It's unbelievable actually how antiquated the state unemployment insurance systems are. They still are today. Uh, I live here in Silicon Valley, you know, the hotbed of innovation globally. And, you know, California's unemployment insurance system is actually shut down right now for new uh, UI recipients because the system has been overwhelmed. And it's it, it's kind of painful for me to look around and see how how. Uh, you know, the, the, this is not the sort of uh, infrastructure that we would expect in, a, uh, in, in, in the U.S., but just that's just where we are. So because of that technical uh, challenge, uh, basically what federal policymakers instead did was say, let's just give $600 a week top off on top of people's unemployment insurance benefits. Apparently, the systems could accommodate that. That was simpler because it wasn't tailored to each person. It was basically everyone would get the same 600 enhancement above and beyond their additional benefits. A lot of people worried that because of that, some were gonna say, you know what? This is actually more than I was making in my job. I'm not in any rush to get back to work. Maybe I'll just hang out here at home. Um, and so, and the evidence for that was pretty limited that that, but that was a, a concern that a lot of people articulated. I could either go back to work for $800 a week in my earlier example, or I could sit at home and earn $1,000 a week because I get the 400 plus the 600 enhancement. Um, and then, you know, obviously that would be an even bigger factor for someone who's only making 400 a week, because then it would be the difference between 400 a week and 800 a week with the enhanced uh, 600. So in any case, but one of the, so that's kind of this program and tens of millions of Americans went on to the unemployment insurance program. And the number of people who went on to the program varied a lot across states, partly as a function of how hard hit the state's economy was like New York, I think as a share of its population, had the highest share of its residents on unemployment insurance after uh, the COVID sort of economic effects started to uh, take hold. But one of the things, so unemployment insurance is often referred to by economists and other experts as an automatic stabilizer in the sense that it kicks in as soon as the economy starts to tank. Um, there's no need for Congress to act. There's no need to appropriate the money. The money, you know, if people start getting laid off in a big way, the, the, the system just starts cranking out these uh, more unemployment insurance payments to more people. So it's considered to be an automatic stabilizer. But one thing that has, and that's been praised and studied and featured and is very salient to people. But one thing that goes on in the background and that's been the focus of some of Andrew's research and Andrew's more knowledgeable than I am about this issue. Um, but, uh, but I'll just throw it out there. And Andrew, you can feel free to, provide further details, but the way that these unemployment insurance programs work in every state is they basically, uh, they are funded by uh, tax rates that are employer specific. So if I'm an employer and I have a hundred workers and I lay off and I haven't laid off anyone ever, then I will have the minimum tax rate in my state. Now, suppose I get hit by COVID and I lay off about 40 workers What's going to happen very soon is that I'm going to be hit with a higher tax rate. And this is basically so that the unemployment insurance programs are self-financing. Um, and so the, 
it is so it's a way also to give employers some skin in the game so they're not just laying off workers left and right without any thought of it that they internalize the cost that they impose on the system and so that is uh, something that you know it's called experience rating and if so if you're a company that lays off a lot of workers year after year you're going to have a high tax rate for this program whereas if you're a company that never lays off any workers you're going to tend to have a lower tax rate now what's happening is that um, what's happening is now with so many companies laying off so many workers in the pipeline now are tax increases that are gonna hit companies. And the magnitude of those increases will vary across states and within employers across, and across employers within a state. Um, and so that is, um, that is gonna be, I, I think, a powerful uh, negative for companies as they are trying to recover. And the somewhat strange thing about this is that the highest tax increases are going to apply to the companies hit hardest by the pandemic. So if I'm a software company and I had 100 workers before the pandemic and I have 100 workers after the pandemic, I'm not going to see any increase in my unemployment insurance taxes. Um, whereas if I'm, let's say, a restaurant chain and I had 100 workers and I laid off 60 of them, I'm going to see some big tax increases. And that's going to act as a powerful disincentive for companies to hire more workers. So what Andrew and I wanted to flag this because I think, you know, there's all this talk about, you know, we want to encourage economic recovery. And I think, but this is going to be uh, sand in the gears, in the proverbial gears of the recovery, because it's going to be making it more expensive for employers to hire more workers as the, uh, as, as the economy uh, recovers. So in some respects, Whereas on the benefit side, unemployment insurance is a sort of automatic stabilizer, dispersing more money when the economy is going downhill. It actually is an automatic destabilizer on the financing side because it rate implies the biggest tax increases right after economic shocks have been felt. And this is going to happen across all states. And I mean, just the final thing that I'll say, and then I'll hand it off to Andrew, is that... Um, States are supposed to uh, run unemployment insurance programs and to run surpluses in good years so that they have a trust fund balance and can draw on that balance in not so good years. Um, and what is, uh, and you know, it's often the case that policymakers are not as uh, uh, focused as they should be during good times to make sure that they're preparing for bad times. And so, uh, and you know, and my state, right in my current state and Andrew's current state of California is uh, was 52nd out of 52 state unemployment insurance programs. I'm putting in DC and Puerto Rico here uh, in terms of its preparedness for economic uh, an economic hit. If you calculate it as the sort of ratio of the trust fund of the state just prior to COVID to its, you know, the basically its level of employment in the state, California was literally dead last. Um, so not surprisingly, very soon after this pandemic hit, California and now 17 other states are borrowing from the federal government because they didn't have nearly enough money in their trust funds to finance their benefits. And California right now is up to $13.25 billion, which is a lot of money. Um, people were praising California for having this trust fund. Governor Jerry Brown, I think, was um, did you know really uh, tried hard to build up a trust fund in advance of a recession. And people praised him justifiably for that. And we were up over slightly over 20 billion, but already uh, we're at 13 and a quarter billion just from unemployment insurance. Um, and so this is gonna be a heavy lift. New York's at 8 billion. It's not just a blue state thing though. Texas is uh, borrowing 5 billion. 
Um, and part of the problem that states are facing, and probably Andrew, maybe you can mention this a little bit more, is that they're, the, the amount of wages that they subject to unemployment insurance is too low. So essentially it doesn't have, you, you may all be familiar with social security. You hear about like, I think it's $133,000. The first $133,000 a person earns, they pay social security taxes on that. Um, and then nothing beyond that. With unemployment insurance in the state of California, that amount, the employer pays the tax and it's only on the first 7,000 in wages. In Texas, it's only on the first 9,000 in wages. In New York state, it's only on the first 11,400 in wages. And partly because of these very low tax bases, that means that a higher bird share of the tax is being borne by uh, the lowest income workers. Um, because uh, and and so it's 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 kind of it's almost painfully. I hate I hesitate to say the word idiotic with you know 100 people on it, but I, I would say it is it is painfully idiotic, like to have such a low tax base for this program. Because if I'm earning $45,000 a year in California, I get an unemployment insurance benefit that's six times higher than someone who's earning $7,500 a year, even though the employer tax that my employer paid is the same. So it's just like, it's, it's, it, there has been so much attention paid by economists and policymakers to unemployment insurance on the benefit side. This like 50% issue, the how many weeks should we give people benefits? Usually it's up to 26 weeks the $600 a week, was that too much or was that too little? But there's like literally no one paying any attention to this financing issue, which I think is just as important, if not more so. So with that, I'll hand it off uh, to Andrew. Andrew. Awesome, thanks, Mark. Um, also, I should say you should, you all should definitely interrupt us. And I think um, it can be much clearer if you, um, if you ask us what's what we're saying that, that doesn't make sense, if we're using a word or something, yeah, anything, any questions you have, I think it it makes it uh, probably easier to listen to also. Um, so the the core kind of interesting thing that most people aren't aware of is that UI taxes change for individual firms. And the reason that the United States does this is because we're trying to make firms less flippant about layoffs. So. Uh, essentially, when if you know if you're my employer, uh, marks my employer, and he lays me off, which he probably would like to at some point, and I claim unemployment insurance benefits, then uh, those benefits that I receive, however many they are, if it's a thousand dollars in benefits or five thousand dollars in benefits, are going to be charged to Mark's employer account, and they're going to show up in the form of a higher tax rate over the next couple of years. And so the clever thing about that is this gives Mark a good incentive to invest in me as an employee to, um, to uh, find people that are well-suited to the job and then to be kind of reluctant to lay people off when, um, when things are dire. Um, so that's, the, the, that's the kind of the smart thing about experience rating is, is that it, 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 it gives um, employers a measured incentive to balance the benefits of layoffs to the firm with the cost in unemployment insurance to society. Uh, so the, the kind of the, the funny uh, glitch is that um, because of experience rating, firms are facing higher taxes when they're emerging from a recession, when they're attempting to recover, and that the firms that are, that are experiencing the highest tax increases are those that were hit hardest and punished most by the recession. So in this recession, if you're, you know, in hospitality or you're in, you're a restaurant owner or something, 
not only were you really hit hard by COVID, but your UI tax rates are going to hit the roof. They'll be as high as they're allowed to go in every state. And so um, there might be something that just like isn't great about that in terms of spurring recovery, especially because you're raising taxes on, on firms that are already weakened. So they may be especially unable to sort of absorb the, the shock of, an, of a higher tax rate. So that's kind of the glitch that we're, that we're thinking about. And, and one of the reasons that, uh, one of the things that exacerbates this problem is that UI trust funds are, are badly financed. Uh, they're badly financed because the, the, um, the insurance base is quite wide. What, how much of everyone's wages we insure when they're unemployed is quite wide. But the taxable wage base for financing those benefits is quite narrow. So you can you can receive, you know, uh, half of what you would have earned uh, um, up to, you know, $80,000 in some states, but in, in, in some states, the tax base will be only $7,000. So the, the simple way to say it is that the tax base and that the insurance base are not well aligned. And that drives, uh, dries up uh, UI trust funds so that they're underfunded, systematically underfunded in many states. And because of that, so if you're a if you're a UI program in a state with low funding, uh, you're not you're not financing your benefits very well. When there is a recession, you're going to pay out what what's left in your trust fund, and then you're going to be left uh, with nothing in the tank uh, to pay out additional benefits. And so these states might be especially likely to raise taxes during recessions, and the taxes are aimed squarely at employment. They're they're taxes on the number of people. That are employed at each firm, so this might be like a very bad time to be making uh, hiring and employment more costly during the depths of a recession. So the main thing that we we encouraged in our in our piece was to expand the taxable wage base so that it was in line with the insurable wage base, uh, and that produces better funding and it will um, have the effect of of reducing the tax hikes that firms face when they are uh, wading through uh, the trials of a, of a recession. And then I just that last week, I had um, a governor's office reach out to me about some of this stuff. And, and they are worried, and I just think this is interesting because we never think about what a governor, I mean, I just never, I don't talk to governors, I guess. But he, they're worried that if they expand the tax base, that they're gonna um, expose some firms to greater taxes, and that's true. And so one way of sort of softening that blow is to raise minimum rates so that everyone's paying 1% uh, of payroll, for instance. And so there's, there's still a penalty for having lots of layoffs, but, but um, you're sort of dousing, uh, dousing the extent to which uh, very hard hit firms during the recession will face tax increases. Yeah, let me just jump in and say like another thing that we sort of argued for in this uh, Wall Street Journal editorial was to, um, to basically sort of cushion, to the extent that you're in, let's suppose you're in the leisure or hospitality industry, where you're just getting pounded for through no fault of your own, cushion the tax rate increases that are attributable to the industry that you're in. So for example, restaurants, hotels, and so forth, Maybe give maybe grade on a curve, so to speak, is what we suggested. So not have such higher uh, tax rates uh, for those 
companies recognizing that their industry is just getting really, really hard hit. And I think that that is um, something that it may not be possible for states to do it right now because their, hem their unemployment insurance trust funds are absolutely hemorrhaging money. Even the 34 that haven't yet borrowed are um, in a pretty tough uh, state financially. And the, the 17 that have borrowed are just going to be borrowing more and more uh, from the federal government uh, going forward. So I think that is a really important issue. And one thing that is going to make the upcoming tax increases somewhat bigger is that a lot of companies are going out of business. And so those companies would have had high tax rates and that would have contributed a lot of revenue to the UI trust fund if they were still operating, but they're not still operating or they're much smaller, their employment might be much smaller. And so the tax revenue that we're getting from those higher rates won't be as high. So they're gonna, states are gonna have to, uh, going to have to employ a multitude of strategies, especially the states that have been really hard hit. Like California's got the fifth highest unemployment rate in the U.S. right now. I believe New York or Connecticut is at the top. Does that sound right to you, Andrew? I'm sorry, uh, at the top of the in terms case. of the unemployment rate. In terms of the unemployment rate, I think that Nevada, Nevada has a really California high rate. and Nevada, yeah. Nevada may be very That's high. Yeah. Nevada is very high. But I, I should also, I also want to give Andrew a little shout out because uh, he, I was uh, super grateful because we were scrambling to get this uh, first this policy brief on which editorial was based uh, written and we actually collaborated with that uh, on that with an, another uh, uh, expert uh, Audrey Guo who's at Santa Clara University and then ultimately worked on this uh, Wall Street Journal editorial Andrew and I on that um, and it, Andrew during all of this was waiting for his uh, his wife to give birth to their third kid. So he, I was just like waiting, like I was wondering, when is it going to go silent? And is Andrew not going <laughs> to uh, edits on the document? But we we squeaked in just before, but he's recently, so he's got a three-week-old, right, is the little guy? Yeah, We're, sorry, that's why I left just before I had the Yeah, right. So. right, so it's an active household with the third, uh, third kid in his household. But in any case, yeah, it's been a pleasure working with Andrew on this. I've connected a little bit with some people in uh, governor's offices. I mean, right now, a lot of uh, them are scrambling just because the hit to their uh, state budgets is quite significant from this. And I don't know if you all of you saw, just literally less than an hour before this call, uh, the president actually apparently said that there's not gonna be any further negotiations on the um, possible uh, uh, additional relief package after, you know, before the election. So four weeks until election day, um, and so I think that a lot of state governors are governors and others in state uh, governments are trying to figure out how they're going to uh, make it work going forward. And so and there's huge variation across states with respect to how hard they've been hit by this uh, pandemic, um, certainly East Coast states. But states like, for example, that don't normally get hit, like Nevada and Hawaii have just gotten walloped by this, uh, given that tourism is such a big part of their economies. And there are other states, too, that have been hit by like the low Oil prices, I believe, Wyoming has been especially hard hit. So um, it's it, and it's it's it, you know I think it's pretty equally hit. Um, well, it's it's hit a lot of red and blue states. So with that, I guess we'll pause. I, I'm sure we haven't touched on everything, but maybe that gives. Uh, well, no, I think I think uh, Mark, you and Andrew really I think hit the critical points, and I think your message is a serious, depthful, and frankly sobering. And it's going to obviously take uh, some pretty unprecedented actions to respond uh, 
both at a state and a federal level, uh, to the current economic landscape, uh, as you have already outlined, it's some specific areas and more broadly. So with that, thank you for your opening comments. Andrew, congratulations on your third child there. Uh, important for sure. Let's go to Maxine Clark, I think has our first first question. Maxine? Yes, thank you. Um, thanks for that very informative, having been an employer of people for you know over 30 years, I we hardly ever looked at those numbers, you know, because we didn't need to. We, we yeah. kept people employed in the retail business. But this time it was really interesting because there was an option to furlough people, not let them permanently go. And so a lot of people put people on furlough, which also allowed them to access the unemployment system, I believe. And that was an unexpected number. I'm not sure anybody could have figured that in. It worked out that people could, in the retail business or the restaurant business, pull people back to work. But we were closed. Most retailers and restaurants, and maybe restaurants longer, were closed from March um, to, to June. Uh, we were just starting to open up back in May and June. And so there is no way that people, you couldn't bring people back if you wanted to. And if you did, stores were opening on a you know, county by county basis, not necessarily all across the board. Every state was different because their laws were different. Now people are going to have to go back in and figure this out. This is going to be really interesting. What can we do as employers to draw attention? I mean, maybe we don't want to because it's going to mean more taxes to us, but I think this is a really important safety net uh, that just exploded. And we, we probably weren't anticipating it. I don't remember even talking about this in the last recession uh, at all like this. So um, I think this is really quite different and something yeah. that we probably should be better prepared for. Yeah, I think Maxine's raised a critical point, Mark, for you and Andrew to address. How do you suggest that employers really engage with, with both the state and federal officials on this? So, I mean, I think it's worth noting that after the last, after the Great Recession, so from 2009 to 2012, <clears throat> average tax rates for unemployment insurance went up by about 75%. Um, so it did hit a lot of employers quite hard and it hit employers, especially like that recession. It was uh, construction and manufacturing that got especially hard hit. Whereas in this recession, it's different industries, as you noted, uh, Maxine, like retail and restaurants and so forth that are going to be hit uh, by these uh, changes. But I think the, um, you know, I, I, I think from an employer's perspective, it's not obvious that they're necessarily going to pay more tax. It just the distribution of that tax needs to change somewhat like California is um, like is stands out among all states. I mean, Texas and New York, for example, aren't much better, nor is Florida. But California really stands out as having the lowest tax base of any state. It doesn't make any sense at all to have a tax base of seven thousand dollars. So if you raise the tax base, tax base that can allow you to lower rates for everyone and pull in the same amount of revenue. And it would just I think that employers could get behind that in the sense that it would uh, especially in, in employers that hire, uh, like in retail, which is a pretty high turnover employer, if you're hiring lots of people uh, for a relatively short period of time, you're getting hit especially hard by the current system because you're paying, you think about, imagine you had four workers who each earn 10,000 during the years versus, versus four, one who work and earn 40,000 the whole year, you're paying four times as much in taxes for having a lot of, uh, you know, People, a lot of lower wage uh, workers, frankly, um, and, and shorter term workers. So I think that employers, um, it is, it, it's, it's a system that makes a, uh, a lot more sense to have a broader base. And I think that's usually, 
I mean, I don't know if bipartisanship is even, uh, who knows, I don't know if that happened, but I think in general, when, when people talk about tax reform, they often talk, so, talk about lowering rates and broadening the base. Um, I mean, that's, you know, we here in California got hit by that state and local tax deduction, but that's what, one thing that the state and local tax deduction did was it, the elimination of that broadened the base. And I know that wasn't a popular thing among a lot of my fellow Californians and New Yorkers and so forth, but um, I, I think here, a broadening the base just makes huge amount of sense because uh, to only apply unemployment insurance tax to the first $7,000 of your workers' earnings, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it just is, is, is really um, inequitable, actually. It's, and, and so it, it, it used to be the case that the unemployment insurance tax base and the social security tax base were the same. And I don't know what exactly happened, but um, I think employers could get behind this because it wouldn't mean necessarily mean more taxes for them. It would just mean taxes uh, distributed more fairly across their workers. I don't know, Andrew. If you, is there anything you want to add to that? Um, well, one one thing that's kind of interesting is that it looks like part of the problem with UI taxes is that they're so unpredictable. So if you have a firm that's just a few people, uh, just 10, 10 people or, or twenty people, and you lay someone off and you don't know how long they took benefits for, your tax can literally end up up anywhere on the scale. And um, if you broaden the base and you had some sort of low rate of, of uh, uh, constant contributions, even when you were doing well, it would just reduce the, the scope for sort of wild fluctuations that, that seem to catch employers off guard. And the reason I say that is that in the data, um, the tax increases have their largest effect in the quarter the tax has to be paid which just means that employers seem totally unaware of the tax until they get the bill. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then they sort of make a, a reaction, which just means that like there's lots, lots on their plate and, um, and that uh, more continuity would, be, would actually be useful for them in terms of managing um, their, their affairs and their, their hiring. And one um, thing that's appealing about this too, just to add, what Andrew is saying, I mean, there's so much attention that gets paid to what are the tax rates for people at the very top of the income distribution. Like, are we going to have a tax for millionaires or, you know, uh, President Biden or I'm sorry, Vice Pre former Vice President Biden um, made has uh, been arguing for a Social Security tax over four hundred thousand dollars. And you know, that's a controversial and whether that's good or bad is a, is a, is a, a different question. But that affects a very small share of the population. The thing about these unemployment insurance taxes is literally over 150 million people pay them. Their employers are paying them on their behalf. And if you raise the tax base somewhat, it would uh, provide benefits to the very uh, lowest income workers and have a modest impact on high income earners. And I think would be, um, you know, we hear a lot of talk about inequality, about concerns in uh, growing inequality and the effects of that. This would be a very uh, fiscally prudent way to uh, stimulate greater equality. It's not going to like have a huge impact on inequality, but it would, I think, differentially benefit uh, people in the bottom twenty or thirty percent of the earnings distribution. And I think that is, you know, something that um, I think makes a lot of sense. So even from the strict financial perspective, I don't think employers would stand to lose much. And as a country. This would be an example of something that we could do to benefit um, the the least advantaged in uh, and and make it le less expensive to hire um, to hire uh, um, people who are at the lower end of the earnings distribution. Thank you. That's a that's a thoughtful full full response, Maxine. Thank you for raising uh, 
important and, and fundamental question. Let's go to Carla O'Dell. I think is next uh, has the next question, Carla. Thank you, Max. Um, one, the proposal makes a lot of sense. Mark and Andrew, I really appreciate what you've done on this. And Andrew, I'm sure your wife has a whole different uh, definition of labor than you do at this point. <laughs> so your proposal makes a lot of sense. But in the meantime, will this disincentive to uh, re-engage and re-employ people cause a couple of other trends to accelerate? One is the, the use of, um, of manpower firms, one of which yeah. is called manpower. Um, another is the gig economy. Another is to keep people under 32 hours a month because you're also taxed on their benefit levels and so on. So can you give us your perspective on that? Uh, Andrew, do you want me to go first or do you want to? I, whatever's, whatever's good. Yeah. Why don't you go? You go this time. Okay. Well, you, you, you better have a well-reasoned answer because you've got a pretty insightful, precise question there. Go right ahead. Yeah, Andrew. right. Go for it, Andrew. I'll, I'll try to. Yeah. Is man a manpower company? That's a temp agency. Is that wrong? Yeah, I gotcha. So, so any basically any added uh, cost on top of uh, for for employing people is going to add to the drive toward uh, independent contractors. So that's a that is a big concern, uh, and it's not clear how you how you address that. It it wouldn't affect um, the, this thirty two hours thing. It, it's actually taxing uh, in in proportionally. It's taxing people that work part time the most. So we didn't really explain this very well in the intro, but the way that the tax base works is if the tax base, as it is in California, is only $7,000, the employer is paying a tax on your behalf only for the first $7,000 that he or she pays on your behalf. So every, every dollar you earn after $7,000 is, is sort of tax-free to the employer. So it doesn't really do anything on this sort of like keeping people part-time angle or margin, but it does add, in my view to the drive toward uh, independent contractors yeah that's right just related to that it also i would say gives a stronger financial incentive to automate more so basically not at you maybe instead of contracting with temp agencies you can have more stuff uh done uh by whether it's robotics or you know uh by you know just moving things i i am here in silicon valley we hear about artificial intelligence all the time and what is it gonna to do to the economy? And this will uh, certainly uh, accelerate any, uh, effect, any move to automation. I mean, obviously there's all sorts of, many parts of the economy that are already, uh, there's automation sort of already lurking. Um, you hear talks about warehouses that are being you know, robots or taking things off the shelves and so forth. Uh, but that the incentive, the final financial incentive to do that will now be much greater. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a recurring question: is how do you make American labor competitive to employers compared to teams in India or automation? That's a recurring issue. That it's very, it's very difficult in the context of you know lab, the things we think are important, like labor protections and social insurance. All of these things make it much more attractive for employers to offshore or to automate. Carla, did that respond adequately to your question? It absolutely did. In fact, I was going to tell Andrew and Mark that tomorrow their colleagues across the campus at Stanford have a whole day virtual conference on the impact of automation and AI mm. and machine learning on uh, employment. Yeah, that's, yeah I, I'm, we're pretty involved. So at CEPR, we're involved with the human-centered artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. David Lee, John Etchemendi, mm -hmm. um, Brian Olson, they recently brought on board. So we're in, I'm, I'm, uh, 
I'm connected to those to those. Yeah. Uh, I may even be in a session tomorrow. I don't know, but I'll, I'll check. I'll let you know. Yeah, let's stay on point here. Uh, Ken, uh, Angelus, I think you're next in line here. Yes, uh, Mark and Andrew, thanks for your comments. This is a, an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, uh, is, the unemployment, is the unemployment rate nationally going up or down? And if it's going up, uh, how far and how long? It's going down. The labor market is snapping uh, back into place. No, no wait a minute. Andrew, wait, Andrew, repeat that. Repeat that, please. I said, I said the unemployment rate is going down. The labor market is snapping in the, back into place. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting because uh, I, I, I can't remember who said, the, said this, but a famous economist once said when asked for predictions, a number or a date, but not both. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I, 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 uh, I agree with Andrew that I think the uh, recovery, uh, the, the unemployment has come down quite massively from April to uh, September. Um, but I, I am a little, I, I don't think, I don't think the rate of improvement that we've seen the last five or six months is necessarily going to extrapolate to the next three or four months. Um, you know, if it were, we might get back to 4% unemployment, but I think there are some structural, some parts of the economy that are just gone. Like we're not going to have as many people working at restaurants. We're not going to have as many people working at hotels or retail. And so it's going to take time, I think, for new for the for new places in the economy to emerge that can absorb those individuals. So I do I I, I think it will be um a, will be a little while. But I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. It is a troubling though. I mean, as we've all you've probably all seen the national numbers for the number of COVID cases each day, and you know we were up around thirty thousand. We were coming down, then we shot back up around seventy thousand a day. Then we were coming down again. Now we're going up again. Like. So the, to the extent that we see cases rising, and it's bizarre. I mean, some of the places where cases are rising the most are exactly not what I would expect. I think right now on a per capita basis, North Dakota is actually the highest in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, which would, I would never have expected. Um, or so, uh, and as that happens, I think states may have to respond by tightening regulations somewhat. And, and it's, it's hard because... Where it, this is this is new to everybody, and it, it's and no, there are a lot of people out there confidently stating what they think should be done. But it's, I wish that people approached it with a little more humility and a little more uh, attitude of we need to experiment a bit to see what is the best thing to do. But um, but it's, it's getting better. Before we go to, to Ron Bergamini, I just want to insert one thing, uh, Doctor Dugan. I think you set the table nicely when you reminded us about the unemployment rate and some of the economic forecasts before the pandemic hit. It was almost like a flash depression. And we're, you know, we're reading from that. And you're right about being a, we're going to be forced, I think, to be more flexible and more creative going forward, which is, of course, exactly what you and Andrew are arguing for here in your, not only your op-ed, but more broadly. So let's, uh, if, we, if we may, Ron, the floor is yours open for a question. Uh, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. A couple of functional questions uh, from the, a different perspective. Are these trust funds that the states have, are they truly separate funds? How well are they funded? And do we have a sense of what's going on? And do they support their own operation? The, the first comments that were made was how woefully um, the, the, the infrastructure is. So 
isn't there a need right now to have a substantial investment across the board here and all the funds available for it? Sure. Thanks for that. Comment. The question is how, how uh, so one thing is it's a federal system. So every state is underfunded differently or funded differently. So, so, so I, I would guess that a third of them are, are woefully underfunded and, uh, and about a third are adequately funded and then a third are, are kind of on, on, the, on the line somewhere in, in between. Um, I, I cannot remember if they finance their, like, um, their personnel through the UI tax. I don't think that they do. I think those are paid from general revenue. Um, um, but they basically, when they run out of money, they borrow from the federal government and then the federal government taxes that back through a rate, uh, either through, they, they, um, they either pay it back through, uh, new revenues that they've gotten through the UI program or, uh, the, the federal government raises federal uh, UI tax rates on every firm in the jurisdiction of those states. Um, so I totally agree that the, the best, the sort of the, the, mo the most obvious, I think, uh, uh, um, uh, reform that you could do would just be to expand taxable wage bases to be in line with uh, the insurable earnings in every state. And that that would do uh, a tremendous amount of good to shore up these trust funds for the next uh, recession. And that, 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 that I just think that that's something that right, left, and center all would sort of agree on. I think it's kind of a, a, a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah, and Ron, if you want, I'm happy to send you out. Feel free to shoot me an email if you want. I'm happy to send you a report that gives information about the financing of these trust funds. They are separate trust funds. Um, so there was a report each year that's done by the US Department of Labor uh, that gives detailed information about the trust fund of each state and DC and Puerto Rico. Um, and you can see, and then they also do this calculation of what is the ratio of the trust fund to the sort of base, the, the sort of uh, level, but basically scale it by more. A trust mm -hmm. billion means much, something much different in California than in Rhode Island, for example. So you wanna scale it appropriately to account for, let's say, population or the, or the total uh, workforce. And it's, my, it, it's sort of like the Social Security Trust Fund um, in the sense that it's, it's a separate account. It's not like that's available if, you know, the, if the state is running low on its state university funding or on its prison system. It needs money. It can't go in there and grab, uh, grab that money. I mean, but I, you do touch on, I, I just want to flag, it is unbelievable to me that in today's world, we're in 2020, and that many, I think most state governments have such antiquated systems for what is arguably one of the most important government programs in the country. Um, and it just, it just reinforces that, you know, when we, we look at the productivity data each year, and the government tries to estimate that as well as it can, and it looks at manufacturing and other sectors to see how we're doing as a country. But the benefits of technology, uh, you know, that are driven by, let's say, big companies, uh, big, largely U.S. companies like Apple, like Microsoft, and so forth, for whatever reason, are not being harnessed by the government sector to make uh, to make the government work better. So it's very frustrating to me that something that probably wouldn't cost much at all just doesn't happen, um, and so we're. It's, it's frankly, it's kind of embarrassing uh, to me we are that we have such an antiquated system my father is going to turn 85 later this fall he always tells me stories about how he's a cobol programmer and he knows cobol 
And I kind of think that right now, a lot of states need to reach out to people like my dad because there, there aren't these 20 somethings coming out of Stanford <laughs> or whatever else don't know anything about COBOL. And so, but that's what these systems are running on. And it's, it's really a shame. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I just, I, not that I think states are going to have much extra money in the near future to make these sorts of investments, but it's, it's a shame because we all can look at, look, look around and see how much we have all benefited. Us and our employers have benefited from this real revolution, uh, you know, uh, in, in technology led by companies like Google, like Facebook, like Amazon, like uh, Microsoft and, and Apple and so forth. Um, but it's just, it's not, it's not benefiting the government sector. The government's a third, more than a third of GDP in the US and it differentially matters for low-income people. It's just, it's very frustrating to me. All the program programmers are working at HUD and I will make sure Brian Montgomery calls your dad tonight. Okay, that's great. My dad will be very happy. <laughs> well, we've accomplished a lot on this call here. That's great. All right, Tim Sloan, let's, uh, I think you get the last question here before we uh, move to a close here. Tim, floor is yours. Great. Thank you, Mac. Uh, and and uh, Mark, Andrew, thanks very much. Maybe as a follow-up to Ron's uh, question, and hopefully the answer will be uh, short. Is, is there a state that you're aware of that actually has a system in place that you would point to and say, Probably the best, and yeah. that's what we should try to emulate today. I have a vote, Andrew. Do you have a? We, no, I don't. Yeah, go for it. I I think the state of Washington does a really good job. I'm actually uh, uh, teaching a course this quarter with former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer, who is uh, when what if I were to say that to him, he would be very happy uh, to hear that. But they have a big tax base. They have a pretty big. Uh, potential maximum weekly benefit. They're well, plenty well-funded going into this uh, uh, pandemic. So I think the state of Washington, I'm, I, I admit, but they, um, I mean, their tax base is I think six or seven times higher than California's uh, for unemployment insurance. And as a result, they can have much lower tax rates on because they've got a bigger base. Um, and so is uh, they are uh, uh, sort of, I think a, a really good example, I think, um, and I, I, I haven't done a full, full-blown analysis, and that's a great one to, to point to, but for California to get to Washington would be kind of a jolt. I, I'm trying to encourage people within the state of California to at least index $7,000 tax base has not changed since 1982. So uh, during that same time, the Social Security tax base, the, the maximum amount of earnings on which, you pay, on which you pay Social Security taxes has gone up, by, I think, about a factor of five, whereas in it's, it was $7,000 that you paid unemployment insurance taxes, that your employer paid unemployment insurance taxes on in 1982 in California. In 2020, it's still, uh, still $7,000. And so it's not a surprise that California is uh, ranked you know, the worst. And like I said, it's not a, just an idiotic blue state phenomenon, which uh, some of my friends will say that yeah, you idiots in California. It's, I mean, Texas uh, and, and other, uh, other states that are, you know, uh, clearly on the, uh, on a different side of the political continuum, um, they, uh, they also have really low tax bases. And it's, 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 it's not, I mean, it's not flashy. The thing about this issue that I just want to emphasize, it's not a flashy issue. It's, it's, it, but it's, it's pretty important because it literally affects the tax burden, the cost of hiring every everybody in America's workforce. And 
with some minor tweaks to get the country more in a situation like Washington's, I think it would differentially benefit uh, lower income workers in the country. And, uh, and I think it would be a powerful uh, uh, propeller for employment growth going forward. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll, 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 we'll see if we get any traction. We have, like, we're, we're, get, we're getting a little bit of traction, but I wouldn't, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we've, uh, our momentum is, is a little limited right now, although that's partly because of Andrew's <laughs> increased parental responsibilities and yeah, my we, stuff. But it, yeah, we're excited we hope, about it to try to we get, hope, energize people. We hope you get some traction. I think, Tim, you uh, suggested a, a very good point. The National Governors Association is one of the, the few bodies that has some modicum of bipartisanship. So I hope there's at least some uh, thought sharing, approach sharing. Every state's different for sure, but there, there's some commonality here marking what you and Andrew are talking about in terms of broadening the base and trying to make it more more equitable. I think we'll go to Dr. Bill Galston as we have before. Uh, Bill, to give you the last question and the last comments as we conclude our, our session. Bill, the floor is yours. Uh I think in the interest of finishing on time, uh, I will not pose a question, although I have many, uh, but <laughs> simply simply offer uh, some brief close, closing remarks. Uh, first of all, to begin where I should begin, uh, we're very grateful uh, that you've you've given an hour of of your time. Uh, I'll refrain from asking Andrew, whether he'd rather have spent this hour with us or what he otherwise would have been doing. Uh, you know, we, we, wanna, we wanna protect your anonymity here. Uh, the, uh, uh, you have, I think, educated us in a very important way. And you've also made a point that is music to the ears of this organization. And that is that this is a proposal that should be equally acceptable to people on the right, on the left, and in the center. And you've also reminded us that if the strategy of broadening the base and lowering the rates was good enough for the most important tax reform in our lifetime, it should be good enough now. Because you know, the, the efficacy of the principle and the fairness of the principle has not changed in the ensuing decades. Uh, so that's that's point number one. I think this has been this has been very useful for us. Uh, point number two is that you know UI unemployment insurance is a game for very high stakes, uh, not just for workers but for the economy as a whole. Uh, just yesterday, the Department of Commerce reported that. Uh, you know, that purchasing power, that, that income had dropped by 2.7% in August. That's in one month. And the Commerce Department report attributed that to cuts in enhanced unemployment insurance, first and foremost. Uh, and, you know, and that happened the same day that Jay Powell was pleading with Congress uh, not to you know not to allow these benefits to the enhancements to lapse altogether. So I think we have to ask ourselves, especially in the context of the suspension of the negotiations over the next round of COVID-19 relief, uh, 
how we should be thinking about this because nobody wants to see the, the economy sink back into another recession. But if policy failure sucks purchasing power out of the economy, uh, that could be the result, especially because unemployment growth, rather uh, the decline in unemployment is itself slowing very significantly. Uh, labor, to, labor market gains in September were only one eighth what they were in June and they could grind to a halt altogether. This is, this is a game for very high stakes. The third and final comment and all of this pivots off what you've, what you've laid out before you is that this recession, this pandemic recession has been a pitiless x-ray of antiquated policy arrangements really throughout the economy and not just in the economy. You've urged us to fix one of these antiquated features and we, cert we certainly should, but unfortunately, uh, whoever is inaugurated in January is going to face a very large agenda of urgent reforms, the, the urgency of which this pandemic has made obvious. Uh, and so you, you've, you've offered a challenge to the entire political system. If we can't do what you're recommending, how can we do any of the more controversial and ambitious things that I think a 21st century economy is gonna require? So in short, you've done your job and then some. Uh, you've given us a concrete proposal and you have goaded us into thinking more broadly about what we need to do and how, how we'll be able to do it together uh, in 2021 and beyond. Because one thing is clear, not a lot of policy innovation is going to go on between now and January of 2021, regrettably. But the economy doesn't stop functioning. People don't stop needing to buy groceries and pay rent. Uh, so it is going to be a difficult period. Thank you very much again. Uh, and uh, with that, Mac, absent any further business, uh, I believe we're adjourned. Earlier this year, COVID-19 crushed the U.S. economy and caused our unemployment rate to spike from a 60-year low to the worst rate since the Great Depression. Unemployment insurance, which was significantly expanded in the CARES Act, was a lifeline for millions of workers, but soon businesses could be hit with a big state tax increase to cover the cost. But as you just heard Drs. Duggan and Johnston explain, there are tax policy reforms states could and should embrace to prevent struggling businesses from getting a big tax hit, just as they are trying to get back on their feet. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been the No Labels Podcast. <laughs>